0: Open your Bibles to John chapter 7. We continue in our exploration of the evangelist's gospel, his account of the life and ministry of Jesus, and the response of those who were privileged to hear it, to see Jesus actually perform miracles, We were um, interrupted last week with Easter service in the context of this passage of Scripture. And so, as a way of reminder, Jesus has gone back to Jerusalem in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the most celebrative of the three required feasts that the Jews would observe every year. And as a result of this feast in Jerusalem, there were Jews coming from all over the world in order to do what they were called to do. And so in this account, Jesus has begun to teach as a rabbi would, and he has a crowd who is listening to him, and there are pockets of other rabbis who are in the temple area also teaching. And Jesus states in the beginning verses in chapter 7 that his teaching is from the Father. He doesn't speak on his own accord. He doesn't speak of his own initiative. He only speaks what the Father tells him to say, and he only does what the Father tells him to do. And as he is teaching the crowd, John doesn't record for us exactly what Jesus is teaching at this moment, but the crowd is amazed at what they hear. They have heard the legalism, they've heard the traditionalism of the scribes and the Pharisees for years and years and years, and here is one who comes and speaks words of life, words that they have never heard before, and so they are amazed at what they are hearing. But the leadership is offended by what they're hearing. His teaching isn't His own, however. His teaching is coming directly from the Father, as Jesus has stated several times in this Gospel account and as recorded numerous times in the four Gospels together. Well, Jesus says that His teaching can be trusted. There was a lack of confidence in what Jesus was saying because it didn't fit the tradition of the elders. It didn't fit what the scribes and the Pharisees had taught for years and years and years. But Jesus says that His teaching can be tested. And if you look at the beginning of verse 17, He says, "...if..." Anyone is willing to do my will. So, in order to test the teaching of Jesus, there is this condition that is placed upon us, and that is the if part. If we will commit to doing His will, then we will know that Jesus' teaching is actually true. This same kind of sentiment was recorded all the way back in the book of Jeremiah, hundreds and hundreds of years before, When the Lord said through Jeremiah, You will seek Me and you will find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. Those who truly seek the Lord, those who truly test His will and the teachings of Jesus will discover for themselves through the power of the Holy Spirit that His teaching is true. His teaching can be tested. The crowds around Jesus are thinking physically. They're only interested in the here and now. And so for them, the approach is seeing is believing. And that's why there's the clamoring for miracles. They always want him to do some kind, of a, some kind of a sign or a testing miracle to validate the things that he is saying. But the spiritual approach to testing the will of God and to discover the truth of his teaching is believing is then seeing. And it isn't a name it, claim it. It isn't a faith works kind of an arrangement, but it is trusting in the truth of the word of the Lord and the words of Christ and then Him being able to reveal to you that this teaching is actually true. Very different from the teaching of the Gentile, of the Pharisees and the scribes His teaching glorifies God. There's two characteristics that are true of false teachers. One, they speak on their own authority. There is no standard for them other than what they think and what they say. They will speak the jargon They will say just enough about the word to make you think that they're actually speaking truth from the word, but they become their own authority equal to the authority of the Bible. The other part of a false teacher's characteristic is this. They will seek to glorify themselves. They want a crowd. They want to be adored. They want the benefit of whatever that crowd can give to them. And eventually we see the wheels fall off when the truth is exposed and they find out that this person is not who and what they thought he was. We see this lived out in cults around our world all the time. Last thing we saw in the beginning verses in chapter 7 is that his teaching enables righteous judgment. Now in context, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he had healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. And at the end of that healing, when the man was made completely whole, Jesus instructed him to take up his mat and to go home. And he did so on the Sabbath. And because Jesus had instructed him to do that on the Sabbath, the Pharisees accused him of violating the Sabbath law. So what Jesus is teaching in the beginning parts of this is that the truth of what he is saying doesn't come from himself. himself. It comes from God. It glorifies God. It can be tested. And his teaching and his teaching alone enables righteous judgment. So there was a lesson in all of that. And here's the lesson. The Jewish leadership have no qualms about circumcising somebody on the Sabbath day. If a baby was born and his circumcision was required on the Sabbath, they would do that without any hesitation. So they set the need of circumcision on top of the requirement to observe the Sabbath day. Well, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, which is a representation of a fuller redemption and a fuller glorification of God. And the Jews circumcise on the Sabbath. So why isn't he able to make the whole man well? and they can only do a partial symbolic healing and cleansing of a boy or of a man who comes into the Jewish faith. So this is the context and in the setting of where we are. So we're going to continue now in verses 25 through 36, and we're going to read what the word of the Lord says, and I don't have 35 and 36, I'll do my best to remember that. Here's what the Word of God says. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. And Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. I have come not of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hands on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. And therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Verses 35 and 36. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, You will seek me and you will find me, and where I am you cannot come? So we're going to look at this passage of Scripture as a continuation of our outline from last time. There will be one major section divided into three individual parts. The first thing that we're going to see here is that the people oppose Jesus. Jesus has faced opposition in His ministry all throughout the time of His ministry. He's at about the three-year mark, and He's been teaching and performing miracles and training His disciples. But the people oppose Him. And we're going to see three phases to this opposition that is recorded in these verses. Now remember that this is taking place while Jesus is teaching. As Jesus is speaking in the temple, This conversation is taking place within the crowd of those who have gathered around him. So the first phase of this opposition is the probing. We see this in verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Now, if you remember, the Jewish leadership had not made a formal declaration about Jesus and his ministry. There was not a formal decision that has been made and communicated. But this seems to indicate that there are some who at least have some idea of what the intentions of the Jewish, of the Jewish leadership is going to be as it, as it pertains to the life of Jesus. But there are many who are coming into, into Jerusalem who would likely not be in the know with what the Jewish leadership is thinking about Jesus. They may not be aware of the leadership's disdain for him or the increasing hostility that they have against him. Now, they've likely seen his miracles. They've very likely heard of his teaching. So they know something about Jesus. But there's a group here that seems to know a little bit more than the rest. And so this question is posed here with the expectation of a positive answer. Yes, this is the one that they are seeking to kill. So as Jesus is teaching in the temple, there are varying opinions about Jesus. The first one, the first thing we'll see here is that there is confusion within the crowd. The very first part of verse 26 is, look, he is speaking publicly And they are saying nothing to him. So in the minds of the people who know something about the leadership's disdain for Jesus and the fact that he is teaching publicly in the temple has created a lot of confusion for these people. Why do they allow Jesus to speak? Think about it like this. If we had somebody in our church who we knew to to teach falsehood from our position doctrinally and theologically, would we allow them to go and teach a class on a Sunday morning. No, we would not allow that. Why? Because we would not trust what they are saying. So this is the kind of sentiment that exists within the crowd is that they know that there's this disdain for Him. They know there's this desire to end Jesus' ministry, but there's confusion about why they are allowing Him to speak publicly. He's speaking and He's teaching and He has this crowd and they're doing nothing. He is exposing their hypocrisy over the holiness of the Sabbath day and they are not challenging him or contesting him in any way shape or form here Jesus is teaching publicly and that word here in the Greek text means that he is speaking boldly he isn't in the corner he isn't hushed he is speaking boldly publicly declaring the truth and he's exposing the hypocrisy of the leadership Who wants to end his life? How can it be that the leaders have not gotten to him yet? Here he is in the crowd teaching and they're doing nothing about it. Why can't they get him? Are they afraid of him? Was he somehow immune from their attempts to catch him? No one was publicly opposing him and no one was taking action against him. So there's this other thinking here is have they changed their minds about him? We see this in the continuation of verse 26. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? So this question is phrased with the expectation of a negative answer. The Jewish leadership is convinced that he is not the Messiah. Somehow, in some way, have they changed their minds about him? Is there something that has happened that we don't know about? Is there new information that has changed the way the leadership thinks about the ministry and the life and the teaching of Jesus. So this group that John is referencing here has already made up their minds about who Jesus is and there's some confusion about why they are allowing him to speak publicly to expose the hypocrisy and they're unwilling to do anything about it. Letter B, he can't be the Messiah. This is the opinion of this crowd that John... Is referring to here. Verse 27 However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Now, the sentiment that John would be aware of as a Jew who lived in the area is this there was a popular folk tradition that the Messiah would be flesh and blood. He would be completely unknown. He would arrive suddenly and he would arrive to secure Israel's redemption. One of the verses that speaks to this thought, which is actually misinterpreted by the Jewish leadership of the day, is found in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. God says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So the Jewish people were thinking that the Messiah is going to just arrive out of thin air, if you will, suddenly, without anybody knowing who he is or where he's from, and he's going to secure the redemption of Israel. And their opinion, this cannot be true of Jesus, because he came from Nazareth. They know Him and they know His family. His family lives in Capernaum in the region of Galilee. He's had this three-year ministry. Certainly, He hasn't appeared out of nowhere. So in their minds, they know who He is and they know where, he's, where He is from. Jesus doesn't fit into the popularized idea that many Jews had in that day. Their conclusion was that Jesus could not possibly be Messiah. Now, as you and I think about this and look at it from hindsight, when Jesus appeared in the temple for the very first time and He drove out the money changers and He cleansed the temple of those who were making it a place of business, I can guarantee you, even though they knew who He was, He appeared suddenly. They were not prepared for that. No one could have ever thought that anybody would come into the temple and do what Jesus has done. So the problem was, of course... They were blinded by what they thought to be dependable facts about who Jesus is and where He was from, although they were incredibly wrong." We don't know if they were saying this out loud and Jesus was able to hear them or if Jesus just supernaturally knew the hearts of those who were there and began to address that. But we know that Jesus challenges their conclusion immediately. There is this conversation taking place that this is Jesus of Nazareth. We know his parents. We know his brothers. We know where he's from. He doesn't fit the mold. He cannot be the Messiah. Letter C, Jesus then makes this announcement. Verse 28, that Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. Now, it's important to notice here that Jesus cried out in the temple. Again, he is, he's speaking publicly. He's not in the corner. He's not afraid to be heard. And if someone is to cry out, you would expect them to elevate their voice in such a way that everybody within earshot would hear clearly. What is being said? So he is saying this right after successfully debating his healing of the crippled man on the Sabbath, immediately after that, while the crowd is disagreeing with his claims to be who he is, Jesus makes this proclamation. You both know me and you know where I am from. Now there's two ways that we can read this announcement. The first one is, yes, you know me and you know where I am from. And this would simply affirm that Physical facts about the earthly life of Jesus. That Mary was his mother, and Joseph was thought to be his father, and he had some real flesh and blood siblings, and he lived over in that village. There is a, possibly an affirmation of these facts, but it could also be read as a question You know me, and you know where I am from? Do you really? Is that what you think? Do you think that I am really the, the son of Mary? The son of Joseph, that these are my physical brothers? Is that what you really think to be true about me? If it is read that way, it would be his questioning what they think to be factual about his life, and it would be a challenge to what they think, and it would be incorrect. Jesus says in this announcement, I have come from the Father. I didn't come from Joseph and Mary. I didn't come from Nazareth. I didn't come from the village of Capernaum in Galilee. I have come from the Father. Verses 28 and 29, I have not come of Myself, but He who sent Me is true, whom you do not know. I know Him because I am from Him, and He sent Me. It could be that Jesus is saying, you think you know Me, but you do not. You think that I am that guy, but that is not correct. You think you know where I am from, but you're wrong. I have come from the Father. And as we think about all the times already in these seven chapters that we have heard Jesus tell the people where He is from, that He has been sent by the Father to say what the Father has told Him, to do what the Father has told Him, that that is His home. He is in the Father and the Father is in Him. Jesus says again, I have come from the Father. I am true, just as you would proclaim to believe that the Father is true. He is the one who sent me. I am not here on my own, and what I speak to you today is not from me, but it is actually from the Father. In the greatest indictment that Jesus has against the leaders that are hearing these words and those that have come to the conclusion that He is not the Messiah, is very simply this, if you knew the Father, if you really knew the Father as you thought you knew the Father, then you would know who I am. But you don't know me because you don't know the Father. Now, for a Jewish person, and most especially someone in the Jewish leadership, this would be an incredibly serious accusation to make. Against them. The Jewish leadership, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the chief priests, all of those different people, these are Israel's religious elite. This is the creme de la creme. This is the cream of the crop. This is the authority in the life of the Jew. The Pharisees and the scribes had devoted their entire lives. To the study of the Old Testament. They prided themselves in knowing the true God, the God of Israel, and that they had possessed a great privilege given to them by the Father. Paul would affirm this in the book of Romans. In chapter 9, verse 4, as he's speaking about the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Paul is saying, hey, as a Jew, you have a special privilege because you are under the covenant of God. That doesn't mean that there is a universal salvation that exists within the Jewish people, but there is a great privilege to be God's chosen people, to be given the covenant, to be given the law, to know who the true God is. Paul would also say in Romans chapter two verses seventeen through twenty, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being being instructed out of the law and are confident that, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and of the truth. That is what the religious leadership would say about themselves. That is who we are. This is what we claim to know and we stand on the authority of what we claim to know to be true about the one true God. And Jesus is looking at him and saying, you don't know Him. You think you know Him, but you're wrong. If you really knew Him, then you would know Me because I have been sent by the Father and I speak to you His words and they are incapable of understanding that this is true. Making a statement that they didn't know the Father was simply pouring gasoline on the fire of discontent that they had with Jesus. Despite their privilege and what they thought they knew, they were woefully ignorant about the truth of who the Father was. There is God in the flesh and they can't see Him as anything more than the boy of Mary and Joseph who came from down the road. They've been blinded by their self-righteousness and their commitment to rabbinic tradition as opposed to the truth that is clearly pointing to Jesus in the law that God gave to them. But this isn't a unique problem for the nation of Israel. This took place all the days of old. In the book of Jeremiah, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. Jeremiah 8, 8 and 9. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what kind of wisdom do they have? Fast forward to Jesus' day and the group of religious leaders that are surrounding Him and you could say, here we go again. This is the same thing that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You think you know the truth, but in fact you're ignorant of the truth because you've committed yourself to the traditions of man and not the truth of God's Word. As Jesus is confronting them with this reality, it's very clear that He has no interest in promoting Himself or protecting Himself. He's simply called to do the will of God and to speak on behalf of God of the father he's not concerned about his physical safety he is a truth teller in a world of self delusion he was surrounded by a people who would rather believe lies and fantasies than face the truth about themselves you know we think about that in our culture today and we think wow what a unique time that we are in that people have so willingly deluded themselves and have given themselves over to falsehood and to fantasy. It's not unique to our culture. It's not unique to our day and our time. It has taken place from the very beginning. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will in turn... Excuse me, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Here we are. This is, unfortunately, the modern church. Don't talk about sin, don't talk about weakness and failure, don't talk about repentance. Don't talk about God's wrath or justice or judgment. Just talk about His love. Just talk about His forgiveness. He's your friend after all. You don't have to worry about God because He is on your side. And unfortunately, there are millions and millions of professing believers who are ignorant of the truth. They don't know the Father because they don't know the Son and the end result is going to be that they are going to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment. And he will say, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. And you certainly don't know me. Opponents of the cross tell us we're okay the way we are. We don't need Jesus. We don't need God. We don't need religion. We just need to discover ourselves and be true to ourselves and follow your heart, right? There's a good Greek word for that. You know what that is, right? It is baloney. We are broken. We cannot be fixed apart from the grace of Christ and the transformation of our lives through the truth of His eternal Word. And anybody who believes that we're okay the way we are and we don't need the cross does not know the Father. It's not going to happen. We have exchanged the truth of God for lies that please ourselves and make us feel good about ourselves. Church, we always have to be aware of the propensity that you and I have to justify, rationalize, and excuse our sin and say, well, it's really not a big deal. Yeah, I'm sure God understands. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We need to be transformed through the power of the cross the shed blood of Jesus, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so that we can be conformed into the image of His Son, which is why you and I have been saved. It's okay to say amen to that. The church needs to hear these words. We need to be confronted when this is true of us. And here is Jesus exposing the lies about the religious environment that these leaders had created, and they hate Him for it. They absolutely hate Hate him for it. So there's this probing. This is probing about who Jesus is and what's he saying and all the like. So, number two in our three point lesson here today is the plotting. The plotting begins in verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We've seen this already in the Gospel of John where the Jewish leaders wanted to catch him and they couldn't. Jesus kind of disappeared into the crowd. So, there is now this plotting that is taking place amongst the Jewish leadership, and it's in, it's in full force now. They're, they're ready to put an end to this blasphemy in their mind. And so what we see here, letter A, is the truth that sets them. What they're hearing, how they're being confronted, and if you remember two weeks ago, we talked about this causistic way of debating the Jews, where they would place one law on top of the other, and there was a cause for how they could set aside that law. You see, you've got to violate one law, so which is the better law to violate? That's a causistic argument. Jesus has exposed this, and it has upset them to the point that they are now ready to grab him and put an end to his ministry. So we shouldn't be surprised by the response of the Jewish leadership. If one refuses to accept the words of Jesus then one must reject him as a blasphemer and a liar, and they're not going to put up with somebody that they believe to be a blasphemer and a liar. So for the leaders, he could be considered nothing less than a heretic. He is defaming this God that we profess to know. He is upsetting our traditions that we believe are passed down from the law, and therefore we believe that he is worthy of So this truth upsets them, they want to seize him, they can't find the right time to do it, humanly speaking. Now there's large crowds in the temple, there's this huge feast, it's a big party atmosphere, and so everybody's there. And so the Jewish leadership fears what's going to happen if they forcibly grab Jesus in the temple and they drag him out since this would probably lead to a riot, since there were still a lot of people who were very favorable towards Jesus, if there was a riot in the temple, the Jewish leaders would be held responsible for that by the Roman authorities, and they did not want to, real, they did not want to risk that. So the question here, in the timing of their ability to seize him, is not about human issues, it's about the divine timetable that Jesus is on. Jesus is untouchable until the predetermined plan of His arrest, death, burial, and resurrection is triggered by the Father's plan. Nobody can interfere with the divine timeline. No man, and certainly not Satan. And so Jesus will go to the cross. They will be able to capture Him when the time has been set by the Father and now is not that time. The time will come in six months. And six months will be Passover and Jesus will return back to Jerusalem and it will be at this time that they will seize Him and they will get their request. They will be able then to put Him to death. So, they are upset by His truth. They want to grab Him. And part of the reason is not only because of the blasphemy that they're hearing, but because many are believing in Him. Verse 31, When the Christ comes, He will not perform more signs than those which this man has he. So this question is posed in a way to expect a negative answer. No, the Messiah, when He comes, He's not going to do more than this. How can anybody do more than this guy is doing? So again, this opinion is formulated while Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and in Jesus' proclamation that He has been sent by the Father. He has not come on His own accord. So these are likely some of the Jewish pilgrims that have come. They've been in the outer areas. They've seen Him do. They've heard Him teach. they possibly even followed some of His ministry. And they are convinced that He actually is the Christ. These are seekers. These are those that have honest hearts these are the ones that want to know the truth and they want to live by the truth. And I think the lesson for us is when, the, we, when we want to honestly listen to what Jesus says, if we're really willing to deal with the truth and the self-delusion that we have this potential to have in our lives will likely disappear. These are seekers. They've seen enough to be convinced. They don't need to see anymore and they want to give themselves to the truth, at least at this time. So we see and understand who He really is, we see and understand our need for a Savior and the truth speaks life to our soul. It's encouraging to remember that in the midst of such opposition at this point in Jesus' ministry, there are still groups of people who are convinced He is who He says He is and they want to know the truth. They will commit to the truth when they are convinced that By the work of the Holy Spirit. The same thing is true for you and I today. We live in a culture that seems to have no regard for spiritual things, or God of the Old Testament, or the words and the teachings of Jesus. We are so convinced that nobody wants to know, and nobody is willing to hear, that we won't even share it. But the truth is this. Even in the midst of the great opposition that we might experience in our culture, there are still some who have been chosen by God to respond to the message. And so we don't need to be overwhelmed with the potential for opposition. We just need to be convinced that it's true and we need to have a greater determination to speak that truth. Jesus leaves us with a choice. We either accept Him fully or we reject Him absolutely. There is no middle ground. There is no sitting on the fence. We have to make the declaration. And these appear to be making that direction in favor of Jesus being convinced that he is who he says he is. And while this is going on, and while the Jewish leadership is hearing this conversation take place within the crowds, letter D, they resolve to kill him. They've made up their minds. This is the end. We've got to put a stop to this. So verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. This is the muttering, is the talking under your breath. It's not the bold proclamation that Jesus is making. And the chief priests and the Pharisees then sent officers to seize Jesus. The Jewish leaders couldn't stand the idea of people believing in Jesus and giving themselves to what they considered to be blasphemy. And so now they would stop at nothing to eliminate it. The religious leadership, the elite of Israel, ought to have been the first to recognize who Jesus is. They ought to have been the first to hear the authority of His teaching. They ought to have been the ones who were convinced by the works that he performed. And yet, these are the ones who are seeking to have him put to death. It's very likely that in this encounter, the religious leadership has made the formal declaration, the formal decision to seize Jesus and to put him to death. And so they send the temple guards to go and get Jesus. These officers of the temple guard are Levites who have the responsibility to maintain order in the temple, most especially at one of these humongous feasts where there are thousands upon thousands of people who are gathered. So now they are on their way to seize Jesus. Number three in our outline is the predicting, this third part of the opposition against Jesus. So Jesus responds to what he now knows to be true about the intent of the leadership that this formal declaration has likely been made. Their desire is to remove Him. And now they want to seize Him and put an end to His life. And so here is His response in verse 33. Again, we don't know if Jesus has actually heard this or He just knows because He is God. Verse 33, Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I will go to Him who sent Me. Jesus says this in letter A, I will be leaving soon. Kind of a blasé, fair kind of response to the the officers being sent to seize him. I will be leaving soon. Don't worry, I'm going away. This is all going to come to an end in a very short period of time. And so we know that the time is near. It's only six months before Jesus returns and they will actually be successful in seizing him. But what we know is this, for Jesus, death is not the end, but death is his return to glory. Death is the doorway that he will go through to go back to his rightful place where he will then be seated at the right hand of the Father. For you and I today, death is not the end for us, but it is a doorway to our experiencing the glory of God in ways that we just can't even begin to imagine. Jesus' enemies want that time to be right at that very moment, but it's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen in God's timing when God chooses and allows it, then it will take place. So the enemies of Jesus do not have control. It is all in the hands of the Father. So He says, I will be leaving soon. her be. you will seek, but you won't find. Verse 34, you will seek Me and will not find Me. And where I am, you cannot come. So what Jesus says to them, where I am going, you are not going to be able to come. You are going to seek Me, but you are not going to find Me. Jesus understands entirely what it is He means in these words. And you and I, with the benefit of hindsight, in the completion of the revelation of God's will, as revealed to us through His Word, we know what Jesus means by that, but the people do not, most especially the religious leadership. They think He is speaking literal. Jesus is talking about going to heaven. They think He's predicting the ability to escape them over and over and over. I'm always going to be able to lose your grasp. That's what they think, but that's not what He is saying. They miss the real intention of what Jesus was saying. So, they will seek after the Messiah. Think about what that word means. When you seek Me, you will find Me. Seeking means something serious. It's something very intentional. There is a submissiveness when we seek something in the way Jesus intends us to understand this here. The day will come when they will desperately be looking for Him and for His truth and for the life that He provides, but they're not going to find it. Because He is already gone and they have rejected Him. They have killed their Messiah. They will seek Him, but they won't find Him. Those who reject Jesus will never be with God regardless of the magnitude of religious theories, teachings, expressions, adherences, good works. Jesus is the only way. And as they hear these words they throw it back at him and they ridicule him. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me where I am? You cannot come. So Jews here in John's Gospel always means religious leaders. The religious leaders thinking are thinking you cannot escape from us. There's no place that you can go that we are not going to find you. We will hunt you down and we will put an end to your life. We cannot be stopped. The truth, though, is that Jesus isn't really in danger. They are the ones that are in danger because they have placed their hope and their lives in the wrong thing. Their traditions, their rabbinic way of living their, hypocr- their hypocritic lifestyle they put their hope they put their lives in the wrong thing. I was curious as I looked at this and thought about this seeking and not finding. It is estimated that from the beginning of time there have been over a hundred billion people that have lived on the earth. That's the estimate. A hundred billion Billion people have lived on the earth. Now what we know about the revelation of God's Word is that most have willfully, willingly rejected the God of the Old Testament and the teaching and person and the work of Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Testament. Billions of people likely have sought God and or Jesus and did not find Him. When they needed him, I wonder if at the time of their death, when they stood before their Creator, if they thought, I'm ready to seek you now. I'm desperate for your truth. I'm desperate for the life that you provide. I am ready to give myself to you now. Well, very sadly, the day of grace has passed. And eternity begins the day that we die. As you think about that reality, as you think about who Jesus is and what he has done, as you listen to the indictment uh, Jesus made against the religious leaders, you don't know me because, you don't know the Father because you don't know me. I wonder how we think about this truth if we are aware that we have put our hope and our lives in the wrong thing. There are many, many people who are sitting in church right now who are trusting in their works. They're trusting in their denomination. They're trusting in their parental heritage. But they're not trusting in Jesus. Who are you trusting in today? Would you bow your heads? Would you contemplate the condition of your heart and your life right now? Father, we recognize that it is our propensity to be delusional about our lives, about our sin, about our commitment, about the standard that we have set before us to live by. Father, would you, through the work of your Spirit in us, strip away all of that falsehood. Would you help us to see ourselves as we really are. Help us to see us as you see us. Father, would you give us an honesty to acknowledge that we are broken. That we are a work in progress. That we are in desperate need of a Savior and a continual transformation in our lives. Father, if there's any here today that is trusting in something other than Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, would you reveal that and give them faith to respond to you? Father, we recognize that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that Jesus speaks the words of life, that Jesus is the source of life. Would you continue to teach us what it means to cling to him? Just to continue to understand what it means to live a life of full commitment to Him. Thank you that your grace and your mercy and forgiveness covers us as we fail. Thank you that you're patient with our unwillingness. But we pray, Father, that you would continue to show us how great of a God you are and that we would be more compelled to live for you and to love you with all of our affection our heart and soul and mind and strength to bring you glory and honor in this life to worship you and celebrate you for an eternity to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.